I get in the game and I'm like, I gotta go check Dennis Rodman. And I'm I'm in awe, right? So and but you're a rookie. And I'm a rookie, so I'm in awe and I'm just you know, gotta check him, he's pushing me in the back. I'm like, I see how you get all the rebounds, whatever, but <laughs> I get switched out on Michael Jordan. Uh, and there is a video of this. It's just 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 proof positive okay. of this. Okay. I get switched out on Michael Jordan. He makes a move, goes to shoot it and I block it. That was John Thomas. I'm your host, Marnie Gellner, and this is Wolves Plus, presented by Aura. McLaughlin for Towns, and one for Cat with an exclamation point. Russell shows off the handle and the shot. Anthony Edwards, Anthony Edwards. Wow, we got his feelings hurt on this one. Oh, Okogie, may the force be with you. Coast to coast for Obi-Wan Okogie. Well, John Thomas, finally we get you in this room as uh, your title, as of 2017, Vice President of Basketball Development. Means a lot of different things. What does a typical day in the life of you in your job look like? Primarily focused on our youth basketball efforts. So that's the, the Basketball Academy. That's everything that we do outside of the community from camps, clinics, tournaments, events, to the things that we even do inside of Target Center, um, where we bring kids to play on our court before the game. Uh, and certainly COVID had its impact. And then uh, opportunities to, to train where the pros train at Mayo Clinic Square, to driving uh, sort of an upstart alumni program where all of the former players of years past from a Timberwolves perspective get a chance to reinvest uh, in the community that they once played and us to reinvest in them. So uh, that program takes a, a lot of, uh, let's call it hand-to-hand -hand combat, where you're having conversations individually, but I'm, I'm obviously supported by a great team uh, on both sides of the alumni and the academy. Uh, and then I'm just a, I'm a mainstay. I'm from here. I'm in the community. Uh, I also help in, in other ways aside, you know, across the organization. So I think... Um, yeah, it's, it's to be a pretty hefty day. You say you're in the community because you're from this community, went to Roosevelt High School, and we were chatting earlier about uh, state tournaments or not state tournaments, and it's a bit of a sore spot. I get that. <laughs> but, um, but you were seen, you were known, you were accomplished and recognized without having won state tournaments in Minnesota. And a lot of times that is not an easy thing to do. How do you think you were seen and known? Well, part of it, I think, was just this, this, let's call it fast rise. I started playing basketball and really focusing uh, when I was around 15 years old. And I was the big, awkward kid with the high top fade, about six foot eight. And I'll tell you also that the city conference was really strong. Mm. So from, from that end, uh, you know, by the time I was a senior, we had a really good team. Uh, we just didn't happen to get, uh, get to the right place. So, I mean, between myself, uh, Rob Mestis, Bebop Walker, uh, Boyd Snotty. I mean, we had these. These are like city known names, yeah. um, and we 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 played hard. We had fun. We were athletic, and and uh, you know we were able to to succeed, but not to the point of that glory of state championship. You were accomplished enough to be seen by the Gophers and to be able to extend your basketball career. Did you grow up? cheering for the Gophers as a Gopher fan? 
I did not. So yeah. I grew up, a lot of my youth was actually overseas. So I spent two years in Finley, Finley, <laughs> two years in, I spent two years in Finland, Finland. Uh, and then two years in Turkey. See how you take Finland, Turkey, mix it together, it's Finley. Um, so eight years of my youth was actually overseas. So when I came back to mm -hmm. the States, uh, that's where we ultimately settled in, in South Minneapolis. So um, I didn't really grow up watching sports. I wasn't interested in sport. It was something that I found to be at some point, you know, I was following, following in my father's footsteps because he played professional basketball mm -hmm. as well. So um, in a lot of ways, the lessons that he, that he talked about and, and sort of because my parents had split, in his absence, I realize now as an adult that that void I was actually trying to fill. So it sort of took me on this journey where a lot of coaches who had started to invest in me in a lot of ways became uh, mentors for me. And so when my father came back into my life, uh, a lot of my decision was certainly around the fact that I wanted to stay home because I wanted to you know, continue to grow that relationship. Mm -hmm. So um, had a lot of options and I'd done the circuit part of, I think, even that ascension for me was I, I went on this tournament in, in Germany uh, right before uh, I was getting recruited uh, and, I, and I showcased really well. So I did those types of camps and initiatives, five-star camp and those types of things that aside from what I did in the city, it got me more exposure. And even though you didn't grow up watching the Gophers and being a fan, if you're living in South Minneapolis and you're going to Roosevelt High School, you're... For sure. friends and your circle and That's your right. neighborhood and all that how big of a deal was it that you one of them became a golden gopher it was an interesting journey because i think there's a mindset at least when i was growing up with with the kids i used to hang out with uh, and, and oftentimes you know what at least happened to me was this well you're going down this path and you're you're sacrificing and you know i started seeing a lot of my my friends start to get into things that were not kosher, didn't align with my values. Uh, so I started to kind of splinter away from that just because I saw that what it took to sacrifice and, and get to a different level and I didn't want to get, you know, get caught up. So um, it was interesting from that standpoint, but it, uh, it certainly shined a light. And as we continued to sort of go on, along our path, the spotlight got bigger. Well, the team got better as well. That's right. When you were a junior, I was looking at, at the progression of not only you, mm -hmm. but your teams. You were still kind of middle of the pack, middle of the Big Ten yeah. as a junior. Senior year, you're a captain on the team yeah. that goes to the Final Four. A team that will live in uh, gopher lore for multiple reasons, but forever. But that team, Bobby Jackson and uh, Sam Jacobson, Eric Harris, Courtney James, Quincy Lewis, John Thomas, how good was that team? We were very good. Yeah, and you were. The, the reason why I think we were so good is that Clem Haskins instilled this essence and culture of, of what it meant to be together, fight for each other, this sort of this, this notion of family. Uh, you can talk to every single gopher that ever played for him. Uh, and they'll tell you, and they have a, a ton of stories that I think will, will make you fall over in your chair. And certainly it, it's a lot funnier when you're there. Uh, and it wasn't funny at the moment. Um, but the way in which he created resolve in all of us, uh, the way in which he, uh, I can remember a time, uh, this was KG and Trent Hassel. They came to play during the summertime. And 
Coach Haskins was sort of watching from the rafters and, you know, KG and, and Trent House were like, I got next. And Coach came down and said, I don't, you know, know you're going to be one of the 50 greatest players ever, but you won't get on before our Gophers. And I'm looking around like, man, I kind of, I want to play against them. Uh, but what it signified to us was that he cared about mm -hmm. our development. And even in the summertime where it was uh, for us where we, where we gelled and, you know, the sting that we had from not making it to the tournament and, and, the, and the progression in which we all took and the practices were just growing and uh, we played hard. So to answer your question, yes, we're, we're very good. We're gritty. Um, you know, we had bookends and myself and Trevor Winter and Courtney James, and Miles Tarver, and we would dare mm -hmm. you to come through the lane. Uh, it was a tough brand of basketball. Our guards are tough. We could shoot the ball. Uh, we play with emotion and passion, and that resonated with, with the fans and the community. And it's kind of a polarizing topic because of ultimately how everything played out mm -hmm. and essentially scrubbed from record books, but mm -hmm. not scrubbed from memories. Right players or fans, are you at peace with everything now, some 30 years later? Um, yes and no. I think that, you know, naturally everyone says rules are rules, and, and, I, th and, and, I, and I agree, right? At the end of the day, when you think about what happened and the reason why it's been scrubbed, yeah, for all intents and purposes, yes. So from that perspective, I'm at peace. On the no side, um, there's a lot that gets missed certainly from a business perspective and what that actually did to help the, the university. Uh, when you think about name, image, and likeness and ultimately how athletes are getting paid, I remember you know, walking past the campus bookstore where I was rubbing quarters together to try to get the campus special pizza, um, <laughs> and they're selling my jersey in the bookstore. So those mm -hmm. kinds of things, you know, when I say no, am I not peace with it? I mean, it, it's history, right? So I think I use that to propel me nowadays around how our alumni can continue to sort of tell their story, how youth can be readily available and understand the platform that they're on, our current players understanding the connection to our community and how ultimately, certainly from a business perspective, how it drives, but more importantly, the thing that I always go back to is the memories that it created. And so for the no part of what Clem Haskins meant to this community, what uh, those coaches meant for all of us, what that locker room represented and, and how when we still get together, the, the laughs remain because that's deeply embedded into uh, our psyche. So uh, that's the part that I think. But, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a great reminder. It's great memories. And for that, I'll always be grateful yeah. for how that sort of shaped and molded me as a person. And the only guys who will ever know what it was like to go through that <laughs> are the guys that went through that. Indeed. It also got you ready for the NBA. So you enter the NBA draft. And I had read that you said you worked out for 18 different teams. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, 18 teams. And it's funny because uh, this is interesting around Pat Riley on that. He wanted me to come in for the 19th workout. And I was like, <laughs> his rep is like he's going to run you into the ground. And I've had so, I had so many workouts. I remember the one with uh, the New Jersey Nets and John Calipari. And it was just me. And he was absolutely destroying me, running me into the ground. Uh, Michael Cage was the big guy who was a former former NBA player. I mean, shoulders like like a grizzly bear. And I'm going against him, but after you go through 18 of those, um, and and the mindset that I that I took was that certainly with the Gophers, it was a role player, but I knew that in order to create some level of noise for me to be looked at as draftable material, so to speak. Yeah. 
I had to sort of get out of what I was taught of like, you know, you rebound, you, you can only shoot from this area. And so I sort of opened up my game and, and it showed within those workouts as well as, you know, all of the sort of pre-draft camps that and combines that, that were prior to the draft. So mm-hmm. that sort of led to why I was drafted where I was. And you went to the draft, right? That was in Charlotte? It was. Uh, Charlotte, I went with, uh, I'll never forget it, Bobby Jackson, Hosea Crindon, my agent, their agent. We sat in the stands. My mindset was I was hearing everything from you're not going to be drafted to there's a potential that you're getting drafted in the first round. I wanted to go regardless. I said, I want to feel what it's like to not have my name called. I also want to feel what it's like to have my name mm. called. So I decided to go. You had your name called. I had my name called. First round. Yep. Oof. 25th pick by the New York Knicks. Um, an olive green suit with kind of a light blue <laughs> shirt and this kind of a the printed suit. tie. They got a little <laughs> wide at the bottom. It's an old man suit is what it was. My my agent was an older man. He's like, yeah, and I went to get the, the first suit. Yeah. I'm trying to think. I might still have that suit. But you might still have I it? I might still have it. It's one of those mementos that you you yeah. think you want to yeah. carry. But at the end of the day, I, like, hey, you know, to my kids, I'm like, let me show you how whack your dad was and what he wore. <laughs> On that day, though, I bet you felt like a million bucks. I wasn't, I didn't have enough money to, to get suits, but obviously it was fronted to me. And so, you know, coming off of a college career, thinking that, like, hey, if I'm going to get drafted, you could probably afford some suits. Okay. Well, I'm going to tell you, you look good. You look good. <laughs> you were drafted by the Knicks. Yep. But... If I have this right, you were you were on the road in Boston for a preseason game. So you're with the Knicks. Mm-hmm. You're a rookie. You're playing preseason, and you're playing the Celtics. I think that night. And Jeff Van Gundy was the head coach of the Knicks. That's right. He came into your hotel room to tell you. Where, where do you get all this information traded. from? It's research. <laughs> yes, uh, indeed. So I was finishing. Uh, let's call it healing up from a groin injury through through training camp. And I was in my room. We were getting ready to play the Celtics for that last preseason game. I hear a knock on the door. Uh, it's Jeff Van Gundy. He says, hey, John, can you, do you have a moment to talk? I was like, absolutely. And he comes into the room and says, you mind if I turn the TV off? I'm like, ah, it's serious. So he lets me know that I've been traded to the Boston Celtics, that you know I had a really good training camp and all the things that I had done to contribute to the team. And I was a professional and you know they're really going to miss having me around. And that part of the business, you never really are prepared for. And when, I mean, I, I don't even necessarily recall, I think the only question that I asked was like, what's going to happen to me? Like, what do I need to do next? Because I was in a state of shock. And he said, stay here. Somebody from the team will contact you and basically come get you for the game. So, Meaning stay here in Boston because we're playing Boston. Yeah. And you now belong to the Celtics. Correct. So he, he, I said, you know, thank you. Uh, and ironically, since that moment, this was probably maybe four years ago, I saw Jeff Van Gundy. It was the first time that I actually saw him in person again. And I, and really? I, t- and I told him how much I appreciated how he handled uh, that transaction. The fact that as a head coach, he came into the room and told me that. So I just wanted to let him know that. It was, it was something that I just needed yeah. to let go. Um, but I, when he left the room, I mean, I'm, an, I'm an emotional player, an emotional guy. He leaves. Um, I call my agent. I'm crying. Because my history with basketball was rooted 
in loyalty and connectivity. Mm -hmm. So when you think about playing at a high school, I stayed there. Yep. Played four years for a University of Minnesota, you stay there. Now you get into this location where I'm like, this is a perfect fit. I've got Patrick Ewing, Charles Oakley, Larry Johnson, Buck Williams. Wow. I mean, like stout power forwards and big guys, traditional style of half court mm -hmm. basketball. And I'm like, this is a great way for me to enter into league and what better way to learn from these guys. And so I came in and I worked my tail off and, and I invested in the people, I invested in the city and I was all in. And so when you're told that, that you're being moved, a lot of questions come from that. See, the, the, the humanization of being traded isn't something that's mm -hmm. never really, isn't really talked about. Sure. So from my perspective, when I, when I looked at it, um, it, it, in a lot of ways, it, it cut my confidence down, right? Because mm -hmm. it's like, well, are you worthy? And you can hear like, hey, you know, Boston really wanted you. And I'm like, I'm not Rick Pitino's style of player. You know, where it's uh, he was pressing at half court or full court at the time. And I was the guy that was on the front of the press. And I'm like, I'm supposed to press the guy. And I remember, you know, I'm going hard and you, you press the guy on the baseline. Then now you're mm -hmm. going to you got to recover back to your man and then go back in the post. And so uh, anyway, uh, it was it was a, it was a shock to my system for mm -hmm. sure. Well, I had read an article where uh, somebody had asked you your favorite memory as a rookie and playing for the Celtics after you'd moved on from all of that. And uh, you had written back to this person that your favorite memory as a Celtic was probably your first regular season game against the 1997 <laughs> Chicago Bulls. You said, we won, and Antoine Walker talked trash to Michael Jordan. Yeah. Then we lost the next game to the Bulls badly. <laughs> yeah, so there's a story even behind that one. It's, it's my favorite for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, it's your first it's your first game, first regular season game. It's nationally televised. It's on TNT. As a basketball fan, it's yeah. everything that you could ever dream of. And it was the the championship team at the time. So I, I get in the game and I'm like, I gotta go check Dennis Rodman. And I'm I'm in awe, right? So yeah, but you're a rookie. And I'm a rookie. And so I'm in awe and I'm just, you know, gotta check him. He's pushing me in the back. I'm like, I see how you get all the rebounds, whatever, but <laughs> I get switched out on Michael Jordan. Uh, and there is a video of this. It's there's just there's proof positive okay. of this. Okay. I guess we sound Michael Jordan. He makes a move. He goes to shoot it, and I block it. So after I block it, it was almost like you know how there's people get shell shocked in movies, like like a, a mortar or something hits, and you hear like Bing! that's kind of what happened to me. So I didn't remember the play they were supposed to call. Uh, I, like I hadn't didn't understand my assignments, anything. So. I am just in, in shock and going back and forth and the pace is just phonetic and it's like, you know, the, all the hype around yeah. it, right? And you're so like, I just blocked I just blocked the shot. So there's a timeout that's called, you know, uh, we all sit down, Coach Fatino grabs Sean Brown, who was also the Gopher strength coach at the time. He grabs it, Sean Brown, Sean Brown, come here. So Sean comes down, what's up coach? He says, uh, I want 20 pounds off of John Thomas by tomorrow. Oh. And so I'm like, I'm not out of shape. What you don't understand is I'm just hyperventilating <laughs> because I'm just in awe. So it's a pretty funny story around like just how I dealt with that game. But uh, yeah, they we ended up winning, and you know Antoine Walker was drawing it. Jordan, Jordan was like, okay. And so the next time we played him, they they smacked us by a lot. Hmm. What a memory. Yeah, for what sure. What a memory. Yeah, that's pretty cool. 
you end up having a five-year NBA career, Raptors, Grizzlies, Hawks, New Jersey Nets, and Denver Wolves. Yep. You played 44 games with the Wolves in that 04-05 season, which obviously was KG, but mm -hmm. still Latrell, Sprewell, still Sam Cassell, uh, Trenton Hassel, um, Wally Zerbiak. And Marnie Gellner, I was, was yes, there as that well. Would, I would have been there already. <laughs> yes, sure. I remember you well yep. uh, as part of that team. And I think the KG just stands out so much because he was the Timberwolves mm -hmm. in those years. Mm -hmm. Getting to see it from the inside, to be part of the practices inside the locker room and all of that, what was KG like as a teammate? Nobody cared more. Uh, nobody cared more about his team. Nobody cared more about the community. Um, and it's interesting coming back as, as an executive and seeing things differently and thinking like, what could have he, what could he have done differently, maybe to help shape a, a better narrative for himself. Um, but I would tell you that that guy gave literally blood, sweat, and tears. I remember one memory. Um, there was a practice, and I'm, you know, I'm 265, 270, and could could run and could jump. Uh, by the time of the end of, a, of those kinds of practices, you're just, you're just, you're spent. So I'm on, I'm sitting on the ground stretching. I got ice on my knees, and KG's up running. He's talking to himself, right? Um, and the thing was, it was so inspiring because you see the reason why he's the 50 greatest, and and the type of energy and passion that he put into the his, into his craft and his unapologetic style, albeit sometimes it's stubborn, right? But for, for all the things that he was as a teammate, for us, for what he did in the locker room, uh, the little nuances such as when the first Xbox came out, all of us could afford it, but there's Xboxes on our chairs or, um, you know, one of our planes broke down and he's like, hey, don't worry about it, I'll, I'll, I'll fly you out. And it was a players only type of thing. And it just, those types of things help to unite each, you know, the, the team. So. Um, you know, he was just the, the thing I think about is just hard work, perseverance, uh, passion, and dedication. That's that's who he was and represented, and I think we all saw the same thing. Well, you're, you last played in the NBA in 2006, but that was not the end of your basketball career because you played overseas until 2013. Mm -hmm. And the countries that I found, uh, China, Spain, Greece, Korea, Israel. I mean, you played basketball in Jerusalem, which is not a common thread to someone's yeah. Resume, yeah. what do you feel like you learned not only about the game of basketball, but about the world, about people, about culture, by having as diverse a career, an overseas career that you did? That helped me grow up and become a, a stronger man because the NBA spoils you. Uh, your, your charter planes, your per diem, your gears outside of your door, uh, you, everything is scheduled for you and you just have to show up and perform the best that you can. And, and I'll tell you, come first and the 15th, it doesn't matter if you were great or if you stunk, your, your check was still in, mm -hmm. in the bank. Yeah. Overseas, gyms are cold, floors are dusty. Not all of them, but the countries like Syria, I remember vividly the country, like I played in Aleppo and obviously it's, it's war torn now and much of that is destroyed. But uh, the gym was so cold, steam was coming off my body. Yeah. Wow. Or where you've got, um, you know, you've got Arabs and Jews that are fighting, you know, in, in different countries. And, you know, there's this 
sort of sting around history that that they continue to bring forth to the day that you see bubbling up through through conflict. Um, I remember in Greece having uh, an M80 thrown into our tunnel uh, or chairs being thrown. We, we came to one game in like uh, police uh, gear, you know, they were geared up with riot gear, uh, you know, shields and batons. Uh, but it, wow. it, it taught you about fear. It taught you about how to handle yourself. And then the, the reality hits home when you come back to the United States and you realize that in a lot of ways, the countries that, you know, I traveled to, first of all, 99.9% .9 of those people all want the same thing that we do. And so there's this rhetoric that gets built up around countries like Syria or Israel, and you do a Google search and like, wow. But it's, it's, it couldn't be further from the truth. And so you know, you think about how they live their life, where they, they put family on a pedestal before work. And how, you know, I remember going to Spain and like, oh, I went to a store and I was trying to get uh, some of my supplies right before, you know, because I just got to the country. And they're like, oh, we are closed for siesta. I'm like, siesta? What is a siesta? They're like, it is, you know, we take coffee, we take drink, we do these things, and you should go rest. I'm like, you're closed in the middle of the day. But in looking back, what they're saying is that we value our life. Mm -hmm. And then it's not always about work. And we value it so much that we're going to shut down and you'll have to figure it out. And they would, you know, you go have dinner at like 10 o'clock at night. And it's just, it's just a completely different lifestyle. And so um, it taught me how to grow up. You know, and that's, that's, I'm, I'm forever grateful for people ask me what my best experiences were, like all of them, you know, we can look at each one of those chapters and say all of them had some positivity around it. And like some of my Syrian friends and you think about the, well, those that are in Israel, like those countries are mm, at odds, yeah. but there's some of the best people that I've ever come across and genuinely will welcome you into their home and, and offer you tea and, uh, you know, just really love you. I remember fans crying because we lost the game and I gave him my cell phone and they would cry, and, you know, this guy named Yaniv and he would, he would call me and just say, John, I don't understand why we lost this game. I was like, Yaniv, man, chill out. Let's just go, <laughs> let's go to, let's go to the local spot. Let's grab some food and let's chop it up. So, um, I miss that, that part of my life a lot because, um, it was granular. It was real. Mm. Um, yeah incredible life experiences yeah. that come because of basketball. Uh, where did the nickname Big Kitchen come from? <laughs> so so uh, when I was in Toronto, uh, this was, we had just opened up Air Canada Center. So my, f my first half year when I was traded from Boston to Toronto, I finished off the rest of that season uh, at the Sky Dome. So Air Canada Center was just being built. So that following year is when it opened up, and they're like, man, super nice amenities, so on and so forth. One of the amenities was a kitchenette. And the kitchenette sat right outside the room of where the, the video coordinators were. And so, you know, I'm like 20-something years old, super high metabolism, worked really hard. Like, I enjoyed practices. I got after it. So I'm like, man, I need to, I need to fuel up. Every day I would go into that kitchen and I would make something to eat, whether it was peanut butter jelly sandwiches or soups or different types of like meals or whatever. So one day, uh, Danny Anning, who's uh, since passed, um, 
He's like, damn, Kitch. He's like, you're just big kitchen. You're always in the kitchen. So, and, and it, it kind of stuck. So him and, uh, um, you know, one of his, one of his compadres, they, they just con- came up with it. And so it leaked to the press. And this is also during a time where I was, I was in the starting lineup. Kevin Willis had gone down. And I remember uh, Doug Smith, who uh, writes for, uh, say, I want to get it right, The Sun, whatever, he plashes across the, um, across the article, everything but the kitchen sink. And so, <laughs> <laughs> so that name sort of stuck from just me be going into the kitchen and you know, yeah, feeding yeah. myself. And so you know, it got to the point where even the announcer was like, big kitchen. I'm like, I don't know if I like it too much, but... <laughs> Hey, you know, at least you know, you're doing yeah. something well, and if people want to have fun with it, it was all it was all good. Yeah, but as long as you were okay as, with it, yeah, that's was, that was a great name. It's whatever. <laughs> Big Kitchen, yeah. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Outside of basketball, you had talked a little bit about where you're from and how you grew up, but essentially your formative years in Minneapolis, South Minneapolis specifically, around mm. 38th and 5th, yep. which is just a few blocks from where George Floyd was killed mm-hmm. being a man of color and being especially a man of color who grew up in that neighborhood how significant of an impact has George Floyd's death had on you it's monumental uh, I didn't understand how monumental it would be or how it would affect me in a way that it still does today um, I would tell you my journey and particularly the journey of an athlete when you're on that treadmill of trying to pay attention to sort of the main thing, which in your head is focusing on the sport and being the best that you can be. You have no idea of your ability to impact your community and particularly for those who look like you. So when you go from being behind and starting a high school career on this treadmill of you got to catch up and you get into college, everyone's played more than you and you're putting in more work, you get into the NBA. Now you're getting moved around draft, you know, that you don't understand the business, how to maneuver, who to talk to, how to, like you're lost. Then you go overseas and your career finishes. Now you're moving on to the next journey, which was getting into the corporate space and you're speaking a language that I didn't understand and how, what is, what are my next steps look like? So I went from one arena to the next, all the while the community that helped raise me, I didn't understand how important it was based upon my platform to really give back to it. So. COVID slowed us all down and it slowed us all down in a way where we started looking at the things that were important because we can no longer be distracted by the noise. There were no more sporting events. You couldn't go to restaurants. So it allowed me to look inward and I started asking myself, who am I? And then subsequently during that time, that's when George Floyd got killed. So I looked at it as like, you're either part of the problem or you're part of the solution. And I, for the longest time, was a part of the problem. So I didn't understand how to create opportunity in a way that led to, you came from this community, there's kids of color that look up to you, how can you show them what your path is like and how do you give that back? So um, I've learned just through proximity by being close to someone you can at least, while you'll never understand what they're going through, you'll at least be able to empathize with the things that they're seeing and being around success and also being around places that haven't necessarily seen success 
whether it's in South or North Minneapolis or in the suburbs or across the world and you're in NBA locker rooms and you're in boardrooms and you have this kind of full plate to look at, you see and you ask yourself, like, where do I want to dedicate my time? And how within my daily work through whether it's the academy and involving ourselves more in the inner city or through alumni when they come to visit, how are we taking them to help amplify what we believe should stop to stop the problem from happening um and it's heavy and and, and it's 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 certainly when you think about the different systems that are in place and how how you attack it and how do you then justify that against your your daily life and having a family and um it's impacted me Uh, i can't tell you how much it's, it's impacted me i'd read an article in in the athletic that john krasinski wrote uh where you went back to your neighborhood and there was a quote in there from a man named steve floyd Mm. not related to george but from the neighborhood and he said about you when he leaves they talk about it they're like man john came from here he's from this hood i cannot explain how valuable john's presence is here what does that mean to you when you hear someone from your neighborhood say that about you I'm not doing enough. Really? I'm not doing enough. Not that what you're doing is impactful. You hear you're not doing enough. No, I feel that I'm not doing enough. I, I appreciate the fact that it creates uh, impact, but it's not just me. I've got to get others that want to help to change what's happening and to do more. So like, Steve Floyd was one of the people who, when I'm out with my boys, and there was, he's like, you know, he tells a story, there's like 26 college coaches in the gym, and I'm just out hanging out. And he, he pulled me like, JT, you gotta get in the gym. Why, man, you got all these coaches in here, Clem Hassens, Roy Williams, like you, you name it, they were in there, and I get in, I'm like, oh, okay, and I put my shoes on and start hooping, they're like, ah, okay. We've lost our ability to mentor people. We're so disconnected from each other. We, we stare at our phones. Uh, we don't put them down. And, and COVID, in a lot of ways, I think, did that, right? Where we looked at something that was so inhumane that the world united. But I knew that, like, the largest fires that have ever graced this globe throughout history, at some point, they, they die out. So how, how do you move beyond the feeling? How do you make it a part of your life and... You know, I can't tell you the, the identity crisis that, that athletes face because you, you put so much into your craft that you lose out on all the other things that, frankly speaking, you're envious of, right? Where, you know, people that have forged careers in, in finance or real estate or, or in computer programming or so many different avenues. And you're like, I was hoping and entertaining people. And you sit in the backyard of with the place that you grew up in and you're just a scared kid that's trying to figure it out and wanting to look confident and like all those things that come up from what make you a man and what make you uh, a basketball player, a father, a friend. And then you look back and you're like, George Floyd gets killed and doesn't stop. And so like, what are we doing? Well, we're not doing enough. We're saying a lot, 
but we're not doing enough. So when I hear stuff like that, it's it's one of the it's the, it's a compliment that all love to Steve, and I know what he means by that. But I, I feel a, a larger sense to just do something, and I'm not perfect. None of us are, and I know that we're all well-intentioned, but intentions don't equal the type of action that creates measurable results. So it's the thing that's keeping me up. That's what keeps you up at night? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I know you give a lot of your time. You are on the board of Literacy Matters. You are chairman of the Boys and Girls Club's Impact Committee. You are active in the Big Brothers Big Sisters Athlete Mentoring Program. And those are just the ones I found on a, on a surface check. Where do you feel like your desire to give back comes from? Well, since you received that list, a lot of, a lot of that has changed. And um, literacy matters because it's primarily, it was primarily rooted in education, in early education, because Minnesota is 50 out of 50 in graduating people of color. So education is the root of and connects to how I get out of poverty, but also how I empower others. So education is very important to me. Um, when it comes to Boys and Girls Club, it's primarily around showing up because they have physical locations and I think it's important to create proximity with people. Mm -hmm. And particularly given the fact that one of the locations at the Southside Village is three blocks away from where I grew up. So I think it's important to show up uh, so it was more of a strategic move, I think, just to be able to lend my, my likeness. I want young black boys and girls to look at me and say, I can do that too. Um, big Brothers Big Sisters through AMP, uh, Athletes Mentoring Program, it was an upstart initiative that partnered with uh, You Want Game, where, um, and it was during the pandemic, and it was just an opportunity to give athletes perspective on their platform and mm -hmm. things they should be looking out for. So I have an innate need to, to sort of teach based upon my, like my father would say, it's not some, some stuff I've heard, and that's not the word stuff, but um, I think I'm a conduit. The lessons that I've learned throughout the course of my life, I just want to pass on. Certainly want to pass it on to my children. But when I think about those that I'm around, even in our office setting, I care about our people. If I think about those who are out in the community, I care about our people. It's where I lean into because I care deeply about it. It's something that I have passion around. So um, the hardest part for me in my transition is saying no. And what I've learned is no can be the most powerful thing you can say because it allows you to focus on the things that are most critical to you. So I've tried to, to whittle down some of the things that I'm doing because I can't be a jack of all trades to everyone. Otherwise, I'm a master to none. Right. So um, like all of us, we're continuing to find our way. I'm continuing to find my way. What feels right? Where can I add the most value? Who can I bring along the journey? How do I empower others to see things that they have no idea that they see? That's what motivates me every single day. Well, for what it's worth, your compassion, your care, your genuineness shines through to outside observers. Well, thank you. I want you to know that. Appreciate it. February is Black History Month. It is a very significant month in the NBA. 
considering all that has happened, especially in the last couple of years, where are we headed? Are we going in the right direction? Are we making change? Are we making progress in your eyes? Um, I think innately, I, I feel like anytime we put black history and try to squeeze it into a month, um, we're actually moving away from and marginalizing what the contributions of blacks have meant for this country. And so I almost, in, in a reverse way, I prefer not to talk about it. And, and rather than talking about it, what I mean by that is highlighting it in a month. No, let's highlight it in every single month. Mm. How do we embed it in our curriculum? How do we embed it in our daily lives? How do we celebrate those that contributed to this country and still contribute to this country? How do we highlight them? How do we figure out a way to best do that? But I would also say and echo the same around all the other marginalized groups, women, LGBTQ, Native American, you name it. We tend to put days like it's National Donut Day and it's National This Day and National That Day. It's like it, it takes away from it. So let's, rather than trying to, hey, this is a month that you have that we're going to celebrate and honor black people, but for the rest of the 11 months, we're not going to do it. So I guess I'd, I'd buck the trend. I'd want us to buck the trend and think about ways of interstitially with all the marginalized groups, how do we start to make it a part of our recurring thought? Mm -hmm. And often it comes down to just proximity. Like how much time do we actually spend you know, within those groups? And do we have a level of at least empathy and, and compassion? And we don't always have to agree and that's okay. But um, last time I checked, we all bleed the same color and we're all human. And for me, that's the thing that matters the most. So I, I will say on, on, on the heels of that, you know, certainly you know, how you create, and particularly for me, because I, I resonate with, and I'm a light-skinned black man, and there's different shades of black, and um, I want to teach young black boys and girls that what does it mean to be excellent what does it mean to establish a standard you know you'll see me sometimes walking around the arena I'm, people always see me if i'm grabbing a kid first thing i'm doing is i'm looking in the eye and i'm shaking their hand i want to know and then i ask them like oh you know and they're you know some kid with that the parent comes down and the parents like oh go get an autograph from that guy and i'm like the kid wasn't even a thought when i played basketball but what I want that kid to know and what I want that parent to know is that I, certainly as a basketball player, I'm sizing you up. It's funny, even today, I laugh. I said this the other day, I'm like every big person I see in my head still to this day, I'm like, I will post you up. <laughs> I will turn around and dunk on you. <laughs> and if you're stronger than me, then I'm just gonna turn around and face face up. And, and I, in my head, I can't, I can't lose that. So in that same vein, if I have a kid that walks up to me, they're not looking me in my eye, they don't shake my hand. I'm like, as a coach, I'm not picking you. And then now as an executive, I say, if you come into my office and you give me a weak handshake, you don't look me in the eye. Like, because the resume is the second thing that I'm looking at. The first thing I'm looking at is how you approach. My livelihood is at stake when 
you are employed within our team. So if you mess up, it's my responsibility. So for that reason, we have to have some level of standards. So to sort of circle back to my point, I don't think that we're the little nuanced lessons like that of how to listen. How do you listen with your eyes? How do you listen with your body? How do you approach someone and give them a firm shake? Those things we're, we're losing out on because we're in this four second swipe economy of like, oh, don't like it, they're just zombies. So I, I at least try to instill that in, in the kids and the parents, you know, just to let them know that I care about their kids. It takes a village, right? So I, I, as best as I can, I try to do that. You're very, you're very insightful. You have a, you have a way of seeing things not on the surface. You're seeing things deeply. It's not yeah. the first time that I've heard of Dean. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you have a gift of connecting with people. I see it all the time. I see it every game night at Target Center. You, whether it's conversation or meeting someone or just kind of your general interactions. And one of the things you've done in your role with the Timberwolves is bring back former players. We've seen like the Christian Leitner and the uh, Latrell Sprewell and um, Troy Hudson, Doug West, some of these names we haven't heard in a while. It has been really well received by the fans. It has been really well received by the players. What is the feedback that you've heard on both sides of getting some of these guys back involved and back at Target Center? The feedback's been wonderful. Uh, similar to my comment before, I'm like, I'm not doing enough. Um, the, the thing that I see with former players is, and I, because I am one, and I can't pretend to speak to what it's like to be a superstar because I wasn't one, um, is we don't always, we're, we're in a bubble. And the higher up you go, the more years that you play, uh, you think in many regards that you're owed something. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. Right? You did your part to perform and create on the basketball court and people admired you for it, for it. And there's this dopamine effect that you receive from like people tell me I'm great. I want them to realize the nostalgia that they've created and the relationship equity that they've built inside of this community still has value. But not only in this community, but and you think about the distribution of the game just across the globe. Certainly guys like KG, who has spent 14 years, has a, a, has a different name and has, it resonates differently than somebody like a John Thomas who played one year as a Timberwolf. But when I started looking through and evaluating, our, you know, what does programming look like and how, where do we want to take this and the challenges associated with first, the challenges like, our average time spent in market out of the, the, the years that we've had from, from day one until now is 1.96 years. Jeez. So how do, if I only know you for less than two years, how are we supposed to build any sort of relationship? Right. And so the, when I think about our fan base and the way in which they haven't gotten to know all the players that have come through here, it's not the player's fault, but then the players are getting you know through the system, so to speak. And we've got a beautiful city with what was it 19 Fortune 500 companies? Name one of them that's been deeply associated with any one of the players. Or when you think about the adoption of schools or what that means, like, so I just want, I want our players to reinvest, our former players. 
I want our former players to reinvest because it'll give a model even for our current players that Minnesota is a wonderful place and can be a great place to live and can be a great place to live and raise your family. Um, and so from that perspective, I, I, I sort of always say, like, once your career finishes, the cameras go down, the lights go off. But the key is you didn't own those cameras, right? So how do you get to a space where you're working with the organization to help retell your story? Certainly it can't be down the basketball court anymore, but it could be unless you're in really great shape, but I'm not doing what I used to do, but it could be done differently and it's done more spiritually. It's done more mentally, emotionally, and a ton of stories that add value. So the feedback has been phenomenal. I'm just like, I got to keep pushing, got to do more and staying connected to those guys, right? Some yeah. of them just because they don't have a relationship with you, they won't, like, they'll see a text, they might hit you back, whatever. And I'm like, keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing. And then when I finally have one, they're like, yes, it's one more, right? So I, I appreciate the fact that from an organizational perspective, you know, what Ethan, Ryan, the rest of the leadership has done you know, Sachin, basketball operations as a whole, how they've coached Finch, how they've supported and have allowed our former players to re reignite the connection. And it's, I'll tell you, it's so fun when you have multiple that are back. And that's the part yeah. that I'm looking forward to is almost like this alumni weekend where we can get some of the most notable players all in one location because I'm telling you the stories. Oh, man. Right, the, the synergy, uh, that's, that's what I'm pushing towards. So um, it's certainly a goal that I have and, and just ultimately it comes down to how are we gonna put it together and what are the hard expenses against it and what's the ROI and those kinds of things. But I'm, I'm excited about where it can go. I think it's, you know, former players are untapped across the board when it comes to any, you know, whether it's NBA, NFL, you, you name, pro sports, college sports, high school they have created connections. So to be able to, to maximize that is, is I think is a great opportunity there. And in your heart of hearts, do you think fans will see KG? Yes. Yeah, I, I do. Sometime? Yeah, because, you know, he still maintains a house here. Uh, like I said, you can't build 14 years of, of real relationship and it not mean anything. And so, you know, I don't pretend to be in his head and certainly he's um, entitled to how he feels and so on and so forth. But I'm like, hey, hey, you know, people still people still want you back. They still care that you meant a lot to the city and particularly when even thinking about what's happening in the city, mm -hmm. um, he can have a, a distinct impact in, in having those kids recognize, you know, what he did when the city was on fire in a good way because we do remember those years when uh, Timberwolves basketball was was popping and, oh, yeah. and, and he was at the, the center of it so let's end on a positive note a lighter note uh, I have a few things for you the first is to to clarify this random fact did you have a driver's license <laughs> in college <laughs> No, I did not. <laughs> when did you get your driver's license? <laughs> uh, I got my driver's license in the NBA. 
<laughs> as a full on 22, three ish year old. Ish yes. Year old. Because uh, I was in a head on car accident with my brother when he first got his license when he was 16 years old. Oh, boy. So uh, we were actually I want to say we were turning on Portland Avenue is the my mom had a, just a giant station wagon. This thing was it was brown. Um, had my boys in there. I think we were listening to music. Um, he goes to make a left turn, but it's the oncoming traffic. It's like, hey, you actually have to wait for that. So he went at the same time. The car swerved, and I just remember everything in slow motion. Just pow. Mm. Got out, shook. My mom walked up. It wasn't far from where we lived. She walked. It started to rain. She was crying. Um, it was pretty pretty traumatic. Everyone was okay. Um, I remember my friends just making jokes of it and whatever, but I was like, you know what? I don't think I'm quite responsible as a 16 year old to get behind this, this wheel. So I opted to ride my bike everywhere and I was on the bus route and I was cool. And it's funny. I remember one of the GMs, uh, they distinctly said that the re one of the reasons they appreciated me was like, I, I was like, what are you going to do with your first contract? And I was like, I don't know, probably get a better bike. Because <laughs> so, you ain't getting a car. Because <laughs> I wasn't getting a car. Yeah, so. Um, yeah. I said we were going on a lighter note. I did, I did not know the story behind that. And yeah, it's, it's, a light, it's, a lighter, it's a lighter note outcome, uh, right? Okay. But there's always, a, okay. there's always something behind it. And, and all, all things considered, it was, it, it, it was fine, but it, it, it scared me. Yeah. It, it scared me. And it should. Yeah. For the final section here, I, I used a source mm -hmm. by the name of Heidi. Mm -hmm. Does that ring a bell? <laughs> it does. <laughs> That's his wife. Um, I just asked for a couple of personality things, some insights, some not embarrassing, <laughs> but we could poke a little fun at you. Heidi tells us that you can do some voices. Okay. She said uh, you read books to the kids in a Yoda or a Jar Jar Binks voice. So I, I, I suppose as I, as I get the bead of sweat up top, right? Like, <laughs> I suppose you'd like to hear those is, is what you're well, asking. Well, I mean, whatever you're willing to give All us. Right. I don't I, know about Yoda. I don't know why my voice is for Yoda, but Jar Jar Binks is really easy. So I, I'd i read the books and whatever, whatever it would say, I would read the book in the voice. So um, so I say like, Minnesota Timberwolves. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah, yeah so I'd do that okay. and, and for Yoda, um, I'd be like, uh, yes, no, yes, sir. and I would read the like it, I'd read the words, but you know how Yoda kind of talks yeah, backwards. The, you gotta arrange, yeah, you I said, I'd say Timberwolves, Minnesota. So, yeah, I've got I've got a bunch of those, and yeah, I'd, I'd bring them out, and the kids would 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 die laughing, and it was yeah. a, it was a favorite memory in the house. But yeah, I'm a despite the the heavy heaviness of what we've talked about today. There's a people know me like. There's a, I'm a, I'm a goofy kid at heart. You know, I'd be, I'd be lying if I tell you that, you know, what's, a, what's happening in our community right now isn't affecting me. Uh, but yeah, I'm a, mm. I'm a kid. Those voices were spot on and I was not <laughs> expecting that. I was I've thinking got, we were all gonna laugh at how bad it was and then you nailed it. Yeah, but you know, the, e even the, the, the track the pack episodes, like mm -hmm. that's my voice. Those are yours. And that's, that's you know, I get the, yeah, this is a, uh, so, you know, you, you get the deeper voice and, you know, you can do that. So it's a, 
I, I've always kind of wanted to perform. I, you know, I, I wanted to be in theater when I was younger. And I think for a moment I was, uh, and I think if I had to go back and do it all over again, I'd probably do that. Cause I just, I'm not afraid of making a fool out of myself mm -hmm. on camera because I'm like, these are my cards and you can talk about my cards, but they're mine. So it's, I'm, I don't get embarrassed easily. Could do some voiceovers. Yeah, I'm, yeah. Professionally, like get paid. Indeed, let's yeah. get it. Last thing uh, that Heidi told us was that you have an old pair of black slides that she believes you <laughs> deeply love. Apparently you say they are comfortable. She says they are a horrible pair of shoes, just dirty old slides. <laughs> she hates those shoes. <laughs> she I mean, hates can we them. upgrade the shoes? Are they falling apart? Or no, what? they're they're the just molded to the feet. They're not. No, it, it's a uh, got gotta let the dog out. Gotta take the garbage out. Gotta do a quick errand or something. Go to the store, and the black slides come on. You know, sometimes you know those creature comforts they they mean everything mm -hmm. to you. So, no, she uh, she's made it very well known that she despises them and. Sometimes I might try to hide them, or I'm like, wait a second, where'd it go? I'm like, don't you, uh-uh. They have personality, right? So like, you, like, like alumni, don't, don't just forget about us and cast us aside. Uh, there's, there's a lot of good that comes from those slides. So yeah. it's Comfort, familiarity, I get it, I get it. For sure. The lighter side. Yeah, indeed. The John Thomas. Yeah. Uh, enjoyed this conversation very much. I always do. Yeah. Thanks Thank for giving us your time today. Of course. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Wolves Plus, presented by Aura.